0: Blob Talk Radio.
1: Aloha. Welcome to Talking Pictures with Paul Booth. Of course, I'm your host, Paul Booth. Thank you for joining us tonight. This is Happy Aloha Friday, live from Kentucky. This is so awesome to be doing a show from here. Uh, I'm very excited about tonight's guest. Well, I'm always excited about the guests, but tonight's guest, we've been planning this for at least a few months now, and I think we're call calling in. We've, we, hello, are you there, hello. Stephen?
2: Yes, I am. Hi, Paul.
1: Hey, welcome back. How are you today? Thank
2: you. Nice to be back. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing fantastic. I, I'm on air, so that's my favorite place to be.
2: All right. That means I'll watch my language, but it's okay. <laughs>
1: oh, yeah. No, no. we. Have I, to let audience, new audience, know there is no censorship here, so feel free okay. to Uh-oh. say whatever Uh-oh. you
0: need. <laughs> that's dangerous.
2: That's dan- Well, if, if I do my Toby Hooper imitation, that'll uh, involve some colorful language. So,
0: okay. <laughs> oh, hey, no, we,
1: we would, we would love it. You know the deal. We we love anything. And and for for new audience uh, members, uh, we've been lucky to have uh, Steven on a few times. I'm um, including our 250th episode. That was fun. and uh, it, By the way, uh, do you just want to go by Stephen, or do you want? what would you like to go by on the show? Stephen
2: is fine. I've been called much worse, so Stephen is
1: fine. I love it. I've been called much worse than what my parents named me. That's a good one. Yeah, right. I <laughs> think exactly. right. I think we just found a bumper sticker, if you want to flip it, thirty your way. Um, yeah. There you <laughs> go. So uh, we're here tonight, audience, uh, to discuss Toby Hooper's uh, The Mangler, which we have to give a shout out to the movie Summer School when they say Toby Hooper classic, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, yeah. We're, uh Stephen, we're we're lucky tonight to have together is uh, was the co-writer, uh, second unit director and also Visual Effects Supervisor. And this is a cool special time as effects have changed so much so much since uh, the film was made, so we're going to be able to get into some of that. And then the fact that we're, it's out on Blu-ray, there's a change that we can discuss. So uh, with that, um, is, there, is there anything you'd like to say, kick it off about uh, Mr. Uh, Hooper? Hooper.
2: Um oh well I mean Toby uh, Toby was one of my you know one of my mentors he he gave me my first visual effects supervising job I mean John Dykstra recommended me which helped um but I did have to interview with Toby um and like every other meeting I ever had with Toby the the uh leather face mask from Saw 2 was on a little uh, one of those, you know, styrofoam faces that like they put wigs on in a store <laughs> like, right behind right, right. him, um, right behind him in the living room, um, staring at me at the same time. So I wasn't, you know, I, I, I wasn't sure if I was looking at Toby or the mask at the time. Um, but he gave me a first effects supervising job and on that movie, Spontaneous Combustion made me second unit director. Um, first time I'd ever directed professional actors, uh, Brad Burrough and Melinda Dillon, so you know Oscar nominees, no pressure there. But Toby always oh, had yeah. faith in me, <laughs> and I always returned that loyalty. I thought, you know, he, Toby was like that. He was, if he liked you and saw something in you, he could be extremely generous.
1: Well, that's uh, he, that's wonderful. That's that's. I, yeah. I like that you passed that on, as I mentioned that's to awesome. you an email, but. Just so the audience yeah. knows, uh, and of course he's most known for uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but um, also Poltergeist and yeah. uh, the movie the, uh, Stephen just mentioned. Um, so ahead, continue on.
2: Okay. Don't let me forget the story of uh, after the Mangler. You know, when HD was starting to become a thing, I was with Toby when they were resurrecting Texas Chainsaw Massacre and doing the HD transfer. That's a whole other story. Um, but that was
1: interesting. <laughs> oh, well, I, I know just the the one time that we had talked, I know you're, uh, you had so many interesting stories. I remember leaving that. Just being like, I, I think I just heard like one hundred of the stories this, this guy has, yeah. and this is going to be a really yeah. cool person to know. And um, like you said, so many things are street, uh, for another time. Um, yes. So, yes, of course. so, the, so, Googler will will for the audience will jump in here and uh, give a quick synopsis and do some of the you know the cliche that we have to do. Um, the Mangler, uh, a laundry folding machine, has been by a dean, causing it to develop homicidal tendencies. I I did myself the treat of not uh, looking at anything of this so that I could have some enjoyment and fun tonight. I I for like over researching, and uh, I've had guests. You know they have said to me, their PR rep said, "You sounded like you." Were. Weren't for, Pandor, like I, for Pandora and I and I, like, and I and I was like No, I I wanna have know, fun too. I like <laughs> fun too. <laughs> Um that's, that's that's part of my joy of hosting. Of so, so so, so your uh, uh this was so I have it right, so this was your first sold and and uh professional, as you said, writing gig and you got to write with uh Mr Hooper. So uh, what was yeah. that like, like getting to write with, someone with such a uh, I mean you knew you got to know him personally but aura to right. horror fans and movie fans alone, What? how was that?
0: How was right, that? well here's the Here,
2: I have to explain the genesis of it so I worked with Toby on Spontaneous Combustion I had, I was an amateur writer for years, I know I gave him three or four scripts, none of which were horror, because weirdly enough I had not written any horror and A few years later, I was working at Disney on the soundstage and the phone rings, and it's Toby on the other end. I hadn't heard from him for a couple of years, and he just kind of said, hey, man, Uh, that's Toby, Uh, I got this short story, Stephen King short story, Uh, I need a screenwriter. Do you know, have you ever written horror? And of course, I said yes, even though I had not. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> so I got the job with a
2: lie. I got the job with a lie, but it's, I, can, I can admit it now this many years later.
0: Um, Toby was right. find that funny anyway. So he goes,
2: all right, man. He goes, pick up a copy of Night Shift, find the Mangler, and come pitch it to me. Click. Gone. Okay. So I had to go into... I mean, I was working at the time doing visual effects. I had to go into Harrison Ellenshaw's office at
0: BVVE.
2: and go, Harrison, um... This is weird, but I have to go pitch a script based on a Stephen King short story to Toby Hooper. Can I have the day off? (laughs) And he goes, yeah, "Yeah, sure, go ahead. Okay, so I went up to Toby's. I picked up a copy of Night Shift, and I'm sitting in front of Toby's house in Beverly Hills reading the short story, which is a very short, short story, all told in flashback with no – Um, what we would call a third act in movies, and I'm thinking, oh, I have no idea how to turn this into a movie. I have no idea. I've never adapted anything. I've never written horror. I didn't understand horror, and I'm thinking, this is not going to work. He's going to laugh at me, so I had to go in, so I knock on the door and, you know, said hello to Amberson, the wired-haired terrier who was always there, and uh, sat down, again, with Toby in the living room with leather face staring at me, <laughs> and he goes, okay, man, what do you think? And I said something. I don't know what it is. You know, it. I, I swear it felt like an hour. It was probably 30 seconds. And he goes, oh, man, that's far out. Uh, I'm going to call Steve King. I'll call you in the morning. Uh, End of meeting, right? right. And I, the only thing I remember is that I said – we have to unscrew it, meaning it's told in the story's told in flashback, we need to tell it in a linear fashion. That's all I remember. Whatever else I said, I don't know. So anyway, I thought, well that's I'm never you know, that was the first I heard that Stephen King had any kind of direct involvement. And I thought, Oh, there's no way Stephen King's gonna approve my stupid pitch. Well, around ten AM the next morning, Toby called And anyone who knows Toby knows that if Toby calls you at 10 a.m., that means he was up all night.
0: (laughs) Because
2: uh, (laughs) Toby was not an early bird by any stretch of the imagination. And
3: he He said, oh, man,
2: Steve King thought the pitch was far out. You got the job. Can you write the script in 10 days? So I had 10 days. They paid me a little bit of money. I had 10 days to write the first draft. Because what I didn't know is that there were two other parties involved, this legendary uh, British producer named Harry Allen Towers, who the joke was he was around so long he remade his own movies. And (laughs) he had the rights to The Mangler. And then a Nance Singh, who's a producer in South Africa, who produced Serafina and Long Walk to Freedom and so on, um, a well-known South African producer, um, had the money. What they didn't have was the script. I... So I wrote a in 10 days. It almost killed me. Toby read it, sent it to Stephen King. And for some crazy reason, Stephen King loved it. And 44 drafts later, we were uh, in South Africa shooting
1: well that, that's that's really, and I think you had said on the commentary that was a twenty one day shoot, and of course uh for no, no, six weeks
2: no no we shot no, we shot for six weeks six,
1: six weeks shoot. Sorry, six weeks. okay six weeks which which is still as you know, and for audience that's that's amazing for a feature film uh this of course has Robert England in it which everyone knows has Freddie, and of course a generation uh, and, uh well, I just knew who Freddie like was because brother used to like to Freddy put, those on to, put those on to scare me. on to scare me. So, you um, know, you got to love old old the brothers who just want to um, make you cry. Want to
0: make you cry. And so, Robert, just
2: you know, Robert is the least scary person in the world. He's so gentle and nice, very smart, very funny. But he loves. It's funny the people who play the bad characters, the nasty characters, the monsters are always the nicest people.
1: It, you know, that's really very intriguing, because I only have one experience with that. I met uh, the guy in season three or four of 24, was that crazy drug, that dealer, drug dealer for sales are, sales are that, that Kiefer's with,
0: that and
1: I met him at a party at Newport, and he just couldn't have been more chill, and I just thought, you're this scary heroin dealer who's pointing guns at everyone, you know, Threatens to kill your own brother, and you're just like, you're just like chilling. To, you know, that's the magical, that's the magical voodoo of acting, but but I, Aki, I, it's a, it's I, it's a, interesting Aki. that you said that. I like kind of dynamic. Kind of dynamic.
0: Now, now
1: you you started off with Toby Hooper, now you add in which to anyone we all know, people, well, know, are people, know people, are people. people are people, but now but, Stephen King's at that level that's where that's it's kind of like. Work. Work. Kind of like, I mean, people don't don't even like people books like, books King. like King. so. Yeah. How, did that, kind how of, did that kind of you know up the pressure up game, or pressure how do you? What was that like?
2: Yeah, well, it's I mean, it relates to the story. I didn't answer your question about what writing with Toby was like. I mean, I would after oh, that first like, draft. Oh, oh. Right. I would go up to the house around 6 p.m which was the start of the work day for Toby. worked till like 6 AM. I was on, I was on zombie time. I, you know, um, we sit in the dark in his office and he had this, I'm glad I can swear. Cause I have to swear. He had that clown. There's that creepy clown from the fun house and it was in the office. and, you know, working nights and working late hours, there was one day, I swear, that fucking thing turned and looked at me, and oh. I freaked out. This is, this is like after weeks of writing, but the way we would write is Toby would come in, he would take a cigarette, it would be almost finished, he'd light the next cigarette with it, because he always had one cigarette lit, if he wasn't smoking a cigar, and he'd have an idea. Toby's ideas came in spurts. It was really interesting. And, and if there was a problem with the script, he would focus on that problem, sometimes for days, until we solved it. And we could not move on to the next problem until we solved it. So he would have an idea. Talk about it. We'd talk about it. He'd go, okay, man, go to work. And he'd disappear. I'd be sitting there in the office with this fucking clown from <laughs> the fun house, and I would just write. And I would write, and I would, you know, and I'd write, and I'd print something out, and he'd come back two hours later and read it, and he'd read it, and he'd read it, and he'd go away for an hour, and then he'd come back and go, okay, let's change that word. Okay, and we'd change that word. And that's sort of how we, like, slog through the script. But what I learned from him, I learned a very, very valuable lesson about how to change a what I call a reading script, which is the thing you send to a producer to get them interested in a movie, but it's not the script you shoot. Turning a reading script into a shooting script. And the way Toby broke down a script and put it back together again was was genius. It doesn't just apply to horror. I learned all the horror stuff from him and the Stephen King notes, which I'll get to Stephen King in a second. But the way he would approach it, and I'll I'll give away some secrets here if there are any screenwriters out there, is when you have a shooting script, you need to start at the beginning of each scene and go, all right, this character here, what do they want? How are they going to get it? What's their plan? And this other character, what do they want? What's their plan? you go through it character by character, moment by moment, and you start to refashion it so that it makes logical sense.
0: Because it has okay. to make
2: sense in a different way to actors so that it plays on the screen. It's a different reaction than someone just reading it as a story. And we slogged through that, like I said, 44 drafts of that script to get it to where it was. And the Stephen King angle came in with... I mean, the funny thing is Stephen King was writing a novel at the time. And I think he always writes, he's always writing a novel. And he holds up in this cabin in Maine... And only his agent at CAA had the fax number. So we would fax pages to the agent at CAA, who would fax them to Stephen King, who would make his notes, fax it back to the agent, fax it back to us.
0: Oh. <laughs> and, and, oh.
2: and inevitably, the most important thing I learned about horror, both from Toby and Stephen King, is... Most people think horror is slasher, blood, all that kind of stuff. And they said, no, it's about fear. The most primal emotion, right? That's what our lizard brains, the, that primitive part of our brains process, flight, fight or flight, you know, survival. It's all about fear. You have to tap into fear every moment and you can't, resolve it, because once you resolve it and the fear's gone, you lose the movie. So you have to take the fear and increase it moment by moment. And that's the most important thing I learned from Stephen King and Toby working on this script.
1: Well, and, that, and that's just, I mean, that's almost like you can always learn more, but that's almost just like, I wouldn't want to say God, all you need to know, but that just sounds like the The seed of that grow any plant. I mean, that plant. That's just like a, that's just like a, like, yeah. Like, wow. Um, You're now as a writer, and you're going into something. Now, you, you said you had found out later about the second unit, but at what part did you learn about that you were going to be in charge of the visual effects for your own writing? Which, Correct me if I'm wrong, right. but usually wrong. isn't the case with the, case with the yeah. writer yeah. also That's... overseeing the effects.
2: Right. Um, well, that that came about the fact that they could pay me for three, they could have me do three jobs and pay me for two. <laughs> oh,
0: <okay. laughs>
2: well, that was that was part of it. On the producer end, that was what that was. On Toby's end, he wanted me there, like, every moment. He wanted me there right next to him at the video assist by the camera um not only when blocking a scene if we needed to change a line i did a lot of rewriting there's actually a photo somewhere on my facebook page of me at this makeshift desk with a computer and watered up papers all over the ground and ted levine actually came in and shot that photo of me rewriting while we were shooting so toby wanted me there mainly to bounce ideas and rewrite as we were shooting. But while I'm there, why not supervise the visual effects and go direct the second unit, because I knew the story intimately. So it made sense on a creative level.
1: Uh, Okay, now you're (coughs) – excuse me. Now, you had had mentioned it. I know we spoke about it earlier over email, but just in taking the time off to meet with Mr. Cooper did – uh, uh, I guess you've, you've you've worked with and you're working with Richard Edlin. now. That's not specifically the Mangler, but how much do you get from a guy that? My gosh, people know uh, Dykstra, Mirren, but we're looking at a guy here with either an Oscar or a special achievement for each Star Wars film. Uh, that, right.
2: Well, it, it actually wasn't Richard. I, I had worked with Richard on one movie and right. learned quite a bit, right. actually, but but it was Harrison Ellenshaw that was involved with the Mangler. He was the one who gave me permission to go talk to Toby. And then when I realized there were a lot of visual effects, I said, Harrison, I'm going to need help with this, uh, particularly because this was at the time, night. I mean, just before I left for South Africa to shoot, Jurassic Park came out. And every visual effects person who went to see Jurassic Park said, this is the game changer. All of a sudden, digital effects, digital compositing, CGI is now the thing. And almost overnight, within like a year, year and a half, every visual effects company either went under or became digital. So I didn't have time to learn the digital stuff. I got shipped off to South Africa. So I was always on the phone with Harrison as the Vista Visual Effects that he ran at Disney was becoming digital. I was always on the phone going, Harrison, wait a minute, can we do this? And he'd always say, Steve, don't worry about it. We can do that now. <laughs> okay, no, Harrison, someone walked all over the blue screen. There's like footprints on the blue screen. And go, Steve, don't worry about it. We can do that now. So it was Harrison uh, actually who? Yeah. Help me stay sane while I was in South Africa, and helped me with the transition to digital visual effects.
1: Well, yeah, and, and Jurassic is, is special to myself and the show because that was filmed on the island that I was on. And so I remember that, that, because I was young, but I remember visual effects. And not knowing the specifics knowing that we're the talking about,
0: that talking yeah. Matt
1: artist, Matt painting,
0: um,
1: right? And your associate, uh, Mister Ellenshaw, of Mr. course Ellenshaw here is, uh, has the Star Wars attachment as well. So you're almost right. like—I feel like you're you're getting guitar lessons from BBQ. I mean, was there ever kind of like? Yeah, Would that know, be kind yes. of like a proper analogy? I <laughs> think. Yes, um, that, that,
2: is the, that is the perfect analogy, is that I was getting guitar lessons from B.B. King. I mean, Dykstra, when I was just a driver at Apogee, which was originally ILM, where they did Star Wars and Van Nuys, I mean, he, you know, he was great to me. He taught me a lot, as, as did Doug Smith and Glenn Campbell and John Sullivan, all these Grant McCune, Don Trumbull, all these great people at Apogee were really generous in teaching me all that stuff. And, you know, and Harrison then later, I met him later, worked on Dick Tracy with him and so on. He helped me with the transition to digital because that was a huge seismic shift in visual effects. Things that you could not do in 1991, all of a sudden you could do relatively easily in 1993. It was was a revolution that happened as quickly as... Maybe you're not old enough to remember this, but I remember the day albums disappeared from Tower Records and it was all CDs. That seemed to have happened in like a two-week period.
1: Ba- it was I, that, I, kind transi- bar- that kind I'm of transition.
0: Barely,
1: I'm barely I remember when everything was uh, compacted, but for me, it was it was everything you had on tape you couldn't play anymore because you had to have <laughs> right. a disc for five ninety nine more thing. or well, uh, yeah. You, yeah, you know. Now, so for so basically for the Mangler, uh, this is you're still it's still uh, matte, matte uh, painting and matte kind of effect. <laughs>
0: well,
2: okay, yeah. In terms of the effects, it was a mixture. Okay, the this was early digital effects. So, the, first of all, we were shooting in South Africa, so it looked nothing like Portland, or Maine, at all. We are lucky to find some houses, which is, if anyone's seen the movie, the house where Hunton lives and his brother-in-law, Mark Jackson, that's Ted Levine and Danny Matmore. It's like the only block of houses in Johannesburg that does not have a 10-foot wall with barbed wire around it. Um, the rest of it had to be, I mean, some sort of the industrial buildings look industrial enough to be portland Maine but we had to do some map paintings and those map paintings were done by Paul Lazane, brilliant map painter did a lot of dick tracy um and uh those were done traditionally the paintings but the compositing meaning adding the the shot of the jeep driving down the road and that kind of thing was done digitally
3: and the mangler
2: spoiler alert, when it gets up and leaves at the end, is a CGI computer-generated machine, not a miniature. So those were and, – and there were some a lot of blue screen elements of adding the people in front of the machine before it blows up, and that kind of stuff was all done in a computer, which two years earlier would have been done in an optical printer and would have been a complete nightmare.
1: Uh, okay, because I'm looking cause at some of the I've visual effects – to uh, credits here for you, and of course we had talked about baseball. And uh, Dick Tracy here, uh, you could explain how this, how this, I mean obviously it helps you as a unit director. But if there's something specific, because Dick Tracy's audiences can relate to uh, being a camera operator for visual effects. Is it just the same thing as being a camera operator if you were just an op on a show, or does it give show. you something no. different that you use for the main? Yes, thing for the main.
2: yes. Well, it, well, in visual effects, the operator also lights. So oh, it's right. more like a director of photography kind of thing, because you don't really operate a motion control camera. You program it, operates itself, right? It's computer controlled. Um, but in terms of... The mangler, the visual effects experience just helps. I mean, I use it now as a director. It helps in translating the words on the page into images, into how do you create those images without breaking the bank.
0: So when
2: when you're in camera, I mean, a lot of the great visual effects supervisors in history, Dennis Murin, Richard Edlund, were cameramen. They were visual effects cameramen, right? And the other group are generally matte painters, Albert Whitlock, Peter Ellenshaw, Harrison Ellenshaw. Um, There's that, it's not just the technical knowledge of how to create the images, but it's the imagination to understand composition, uh, you know, the framing of a shot, color palette, all those things, lighting, that make a shot look real, which is what you're trying to do. So it all kind of helped in a in a roundabout way.
1: Yeah, excuse me. Unless it's personal and you don't want to answer, was there? Uh, it showed that after the mangler, that you weren't in visual effects. Is 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 there something that something that that, that you could go into explaining visual effects, or if it's personal, obviously we can just skip.
2: No, I just – I mean, after The Mangler, I just – I mean, I did some visual effects for some movies I wrote for New Image and so on, um, but I was just trying to get out of visual effects. It wasn't my thing. it, It takes a very specific mentality to be into visual effects. You have to be really into loving the technology, particularly nowadays, you know, you have to be excited about the latest upgrade to Lightwave or Nuke or, you know, Da Vinci Resolve. And you have to get excited about the technical things, and I just wasn't. I was always a writer. I fell into visual effects accidentally, um, and it became my day job to pay the bills while I was trying to be a writer. Uh, but nowadays, okay. I, use, I mean, I use the knowledge. I mean, I have this movie I'm supposed to do in the U.K. called... Skindleby, which has visual effects in it, and I've had discussions with visual effects people about how to execute the movie, and it's helpful in that I speak their language.
1: Okay, okay. Because okay, okay. you got some, you got a good, obviously you know, but for audience, you got a nice solid gate okay. here, and I mean, I, I have to go back to this, I, it wasn't my uh, it wasn't my if I remember kind of missing the deal, um, is now because we've talked about directors and this will be very, very quick. Uh, is there anything, uh, working with a director, uh, since you've worked, you work with Toby Hooper, you've been around these guys who are the BB B. Kings of effect, uh, doing effects with Warren Beatty. Is there any quick comment you can make on that?
0: Well,
2: I wasn't high level on um, Dick Tracy. I was shooting matte paintings, and Harrison Ellenshaw was the one dealing with Warren. So I I had no interaction with him.
1: Okay, I see. Okay. So so this is... See, I'm just so intrigued by this, because I know from just basic production knowledge that these are not... Like we're like I said, these are not the jobs that go together. I mean obviously Aaron Sorkins not operating the camera and um right. so that's what I found really intriguing about this as I looked over this. Now for the for the manga, let me grab my note here. I'm interested I, mean, I was yes, really so it's interested. Weird,
0: oh, sorry. I took
2: I took a very weird route to writing and directing. I'll give you that, right? It's There are people who go right from visual effects to directing um, uh, because people want them to direct an effects movie and they think it'll save them money. But to go from visual effects to writing then to directing is kind of a weird, convoluted path.
1: Oh, wait, one sec. Let me see if our caller is coming in. Okay. One second. Uh, Let's see. Uh, welcome, By the we way, what it
2: say... Oh, okay. Is it, oh, is it Jeremy yeah, Crutchley? I know Jeremy's listening, but he may not call in. He was JJJ Picture it, Man.
1: It's 661. That, is that, is that, that, that Jeremy or is that Jason? That's Jason.
4: That's Jason.
1: Hi, Jason. Welcome,
4: Jason. Hey, it's uh, <laughs> nice to be on. How are you guys doing tonight?
2: Welcome, Jason. We're good. We're, we're well, we're good. talking movies. I mean, what could be better? <laughs>
1: Which, which yeah is, especially,
4: uh, it's, it's, it's especially especially horror, especially which, is horror like, which is like just my, thing.
1: just my thing yeah, this is my uh, friend from high school stephen uh
4: okay
0: who, uh, we've known
1: this since ninety five and he was what I was telling you has a Facebook page for horror film. um and we're gonna before we go into uh his question, there was just one thing that uh we could address that I know Jason will be interested as well. That um, I've always wondered with. I mean, no, no, no. Writer knows what the sound design is going to be, but because horror films, to me, aside from war films, are so heavy on the sound design. What is it like as you're writing uh, and just having? I mean, I mean, war films they have some kind of a clue, but horror films, you're just you're almost completely in the dark on what sound design is okay. going to sound be sound for design. your words and your creation. Right. What is that? That's like a, a writer.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. That's actually a very insightful, <laughs> very insightful question. Um, because when I had to write that first draft in 10 days, I didn't have nearly enough to fill, you know, the hundred pages of a screenplay.
3: So normally
2: you don't write sound effects into a script unless it's important to um the story. I mean you might say the you know the telephone rings and put rings in all caps and that kind of thing. But you generally don't write atmospheric sound effects into it. But because I needed to fill up space on this script because it was a very short, short story, and I had only 10 days to write the first draft, I kept describing the Mangler. Every time I described it, I would say, boom, boom, hiss, hiss. Boom, boom, hiss, hiss. Which got translated into into the, I always heard this sort of industrial, like a large piston going boom,
0: boom, boom. And then the hiss
2: of the steam, and that actually made it into the sound design.
0: Oh that's but awesome. I did it, but
2: I did it mainly I did it even though I was imagining it. I did it mainly as a filler <laughs> to get the script to hundred pages.
1: <laughs> oh, I like that I like, I hear about those medical shows where they just say that instead of the crazy surgical stuff, it's just medical, medical medical, medical doctor medical right. um right. so so Jason, um, so I know so we can bring you in at a certain place uh. Were were you able to listen to the last little bit?
4: Yeah, definitely. definitely. It was really kind of cool. uh, (laughs) cool Because, yeah, him saying (laughs) that, you know, being that that I'm actually a fan of of the Mangler movie, movie, movie. yeah, those sounds sounds definitely got into it it. and really uh, Uh, helped uh, to emphasize (laughs) the actual speed uh, iron, or the steam iron, as it would be. Right,
0: right, right.
4: But, yeah, it was brilliantly done, actually.
2: And once again, to Toby's credit, you know most directors don't want the writer on set, and they certainly don't want the writer in post. You know, he was editing in South Africa while I was in Burbank at Disney doing the effects. But when it came to the sound design, he wanted me there, so I went through the whole process. He he didn't only want me there just sort of to bounce ideas, but he wanted me to learn the process, right? And this was long before Pro Tools. This was a team of people cutting tape, putting yeah. reels on machines, and <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so that's, I was that's there so as, they were creating, <laughs> as they were creating the design. So once again, you know, I can't say enough about how how, how much I owe Toby, you know, for just bringing me along on that ride.
1: Stock, yeah, you're 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 definitely going back there. I remember film school days, Nagstock, and stock, when we would have virtual problems, our... Film school teachers would be like, shut up, because if you were once rocket on, you'd have to have the thing, And just like you guys have no idea, this would take times longer. Um, so, Jason, since you were listening and you're going to know uh, what we went over and covered, uh, of course, we had you send to uh, fire away with a, a question that you had.
4: Well, my mine, um, you know, are, feelings, are kinda you know, simple are kinda because, because like I said, like it, it said, just it seems, seems to me that when a lot of people talk about people Toby Hooper's, Hooper's films,
0: films
4: it's sad that sometimes the mangler, the mangler it doesn't get the same credit the same as something credit like Life Force or Life Texas Life Chainsaw or the Massacre the or of course poltergeist.
2: Right. poltergeist.
4: Right. But I mean, you know
2: But it's getting you know one of the ones getting it now. I think it was ahead of its time and sort of the humor that was put into it.
4: Sure. 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 I mean, a lot sure. of that, you know, yeah. I got to give a lot of credit to Robert England and Paul Levine for their, uh, <laughs> they
2: did oh, Ted, a wonderful yeah, job. Ted. Ted was, Ted was, oh yeah, Ted was hysterical. Yes. Well, all that, yeah, a lot of the Gartley stuff was Robert, the leg braces and the, it wasn't until I saw the interview on the Blu-ray when he talked about how he he's doing Harry Truman, I thought, oh, my God, you're right. He was doing Harry Truman. I didn't know.
4: (laughs) I mean, my my big thing was, though, my question is, I mean, you know, with Toby, you know, passing not too long ago, I mean, there's a lot of rumor that I've heard that, you know, he just really didn't have much, you know, like for, you know, mainstream Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, I was just curious how much insight you might have on that side of the thing with Toby.
3: Yeah, you know
2: what it is, is he... I don't think it's not a dislike for mainstream Hollywood. It's just that mainstream Hollywood, it's difficult... Let me put it this way. He made Texas Chainsaw. Well, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was actually his second film. I don't know if you've ever seen Eggshells, which I think... God, is David? David Gregory... His company release Eggshells on Blu-ray. I think someone did. Eggshells was Hmm. his first movie, which is a psychedelic, weird hippie thing, not horror at all. Texas Chainsaw Massacre was his second movie, and I think the problem is when you do a movie for two dollars and fifty cents and it makes a fortune and makes a splash, then the machinery of the filmmaking business whether you call that Hollywood or mainstream or whatever you call it, wants to capture that. But the rules of corporate filmmaking are different than the rules of indie filmmaking. Indie filmmaking, you get the money from some a doctor or a lawyer or a group of people who don't know anything about movies, and they're excited just to be on the set and get a chair with their name on it. And you go ahead and make your movie – with all the compromises that go into making something ultra low budget, right? Cause every day you don't get what you want. You have to sort of get through the day and get as much as okay. you can. Cause there's no money. Then all of a sudden yeah. someone throws a lot of money at you huh. and the people who throw money at you do know about movie making. So they're going to start offering opinions uh, direction on how you should go. They may even get to the point of where they watch dailies and send you memos. So now all of a sudden you're dealing with the politics of movie making that you weren't necessarily dealing with as an indie.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I
2: never heard Toby say anything bad about his experience on poltergeist, which was arguably his most mainstream big budget Hollywood movie. Um, he just—he only cared. Toby was actually very focused on just the filmmaking. He was just a director. All he cared about. You walked into his house, and there'd be—he'd have screens everywhere playing different movies. Right. He named his dog oh. Amberson after the magnificent Ambersons because he worshipped Orson Wells. Uh. So for him, <laughs> it was an—it was an art, and when you're just an artist like Toby, the business will wear you down and it's a fight. So it's not that he didn't like it. It's just that it was an adjustment for him. Hmm. If I answered the question, it's cause it's a complicated, well, Toby was a complicated guy as, as simple as he was being single minded and wanting to be a director. He was, he had a complicated worldview. Um, So it's and you kind of go where the you're sort of the ball in a pinball machine where all the bumpers are all the elements of movie making money producers distributors PR people all that stuff and you get sort of bounced around and Toby was really bounced around particularly after Poltergeist Um, unfairly so unfairly so.
4: Well, I don't sure. know if I answered your uh,
2: question. It's just. It, it, it's no,
0: just
4: it, no, no, no. He he. Yeah, Toby was one of my favorite directors. My three in the horror genre are George Romero, John Carpenter, yep. and Toby Hooper. Yep. All three of them yes, just sure. made fantastic scary movies, and I I wish, I wish there was more people in Hollywood these days that made movies like that because it just doesn't doesn't seem to grab me the same way, at least in the horror, horror, genre. horror genre. Every once in a while, there I'll see one that grabs me. Grab but, yeah. Right. But, yeah. Um, well, because, no, because mean,
2: even, indie, even indie movies nowadays are corporate. That's the yeah. thing. Unless it's a $25,000 movie that someone shot on their iPhone, it's a corporate movie of some kind. So yeah. what with that comes... A lot of people with a lot of influence, and as a director, you have to you spend ninety five percent of your time battling that, and five percent of your time making the movie, which some people can do brilliantly, but it's hard.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, well, like learned- another one,
1: like oh, oh, go okay, ahead. I mean, and and Sorry. you got to just you learn, uh, and you of course you don't have to think about them or. Uh, but you you learned, uh, like saying your path wasn't the usual path, or there is no path, but whatever some path is. I mean, you're you're learning this indie studio thing from. Uh, I mean, it doesn't get any bigger than uh, the Star Wars films and the Raiders films and the guys. And to lead into Poltergeist, which I'm 99% sure Spielberg produced. So you're you're in this kind of, I guess, knowing and looking for people who are in the 50-50 where you watch the documentaries and they're just film history nuts. And they are artists and then... They just happen to become billionaires doing their art. So um, I've always kind of interesting when I see those documentaries where Spielberg saying, I make my kids watch classic films. And then people just want to go off and be the next Spielberg. They don't want to take those words, learn classic films and do something for themselves. So I just wanted to kind of throw that in that it's, it's an interesting duality that, uh, that you've come from from those people that are at the top when you're speaking of corporate and studio. Um, and uh, sorry about that, Jason, but let's, let's go back to your next question.
0: Well, yeah, no.
2: <laughs> Let me just follow up for a second. I mean, the, that first of all, that someone who wants to be the next Steven Spielberg should just leave the business because you don't need another one. We have one.
0: Right right,
2: right, right. Be be your own be your own voice. You can be inspired by Steven Spielberg. You can do the big low push-in shot, you know, craning up to the actor reaction thing that Steven Spielberg does. You can learn from him. He's a master of the craft, but you don't want to be him. You want to have your own voice. Toby had a unique voice that not everybody understood. You know, and and the trick to a career is balancing your voice and the art and realizing you're actually playing with someone else's money. And the more money you're playing with, the more influence the money people will have because they want to make their money back, and that's legitimate. So you have to sort of it's, – it's, it's a balance to actually – you know, and there are filmmakers who – Look at Christopher Nolan. There are people who love him, people who hate him, but you have to admit he makes interesting different kind of movies that are corporate-funded. So he can somehow manage that both. I mean, Tim Burton managed that both, right? There are directors who can manage both.
0: But that's tricky. Oh, it's a, it's, that's, yeah, no, it's too, a real
2: interesting balancing act. Two
1: amazing Examples, especially especially uh, Christopher Nolan. I mean, Jason is so, uh, I I think of him as like, he's like a Robert Oz of horror film. So um, I was, that's why I was really excited to bring you on because this is the first call-in show that we've had where we've had uh, some, uh, obviously a call-in, but we've had a guest or um it's uh so I'm excited about this because it's also the first time we've had a guest who did a commentary so uh Jason if you can get your uh, hand on this blu-ray there's um also an interview with uh Robert Englund uh I di- I did not watch so I wouldn't learn too much about the movie uh the commentary is fantastic so um so yes yeah, so, uh, fire with uh with what else you'd like to uh
4: throw in throw in from-
2: yeah, absolutely. Anything, anything you want to know.
4: Well, I was actually way, really Jason. curious. Yeah, I was just really curious how much involvement Stephen King actually had with the film, and if you've heard whether he saw it and liked it.
2: Oh yes, I know the answers to both of those. So it's maybe you, I, I explained earlier on the show. So the process was. Stephen King was writing a novel at the time, but the fact that he writes 120 novels a year I mean he's always writing a novel. <laughs> he holds up in a cabin in rural Maine uh, back then, and only his agent at CAA, Creative Artists Agency, had the fax number. So we would write, Toby and I would write pages, I'd print them out. Toby would fax them to the agent. The agent would fax them with Stephen King. He'd fax his notes back to the agent, and those notes would come back to us, and Toby would read them to me. You haven't no. lived until you've heard Stephen King script notes read by Toby Hooper. There's something magical about that. <laughs> uh, but in the end, I mean, in the end, here's the thing is the genesis of this movie is the producers of Lawnmower Man also had the rights huh. to the Mangler. And I forget the name. Their names are on the movie, but they were not involved with the movie. But I forget their names. But you you may not remember this. But Lawnmower Man was sold as Stephen King's The Lawnmower Man, and they took a guy in a lawnmower and created this whole virtual reality other story that had nothing to do with Stephen King.
4: Yeah. And he was not
2: happy about that. He sued them. Yeah. And he, and as far as I know, he was he told those producers you will never make the Mangler. I'm not going to let you.
4: Well, yeah, and he also had his right name screen. taken off, taken off the movie, right. correct?
2: Right. Yes. Yeah. I believe I, well, I believe it's still there, as in based on the story. But they had marketed it as Stephen King's The Lawnmower Man. I think that's the credit they removed. But this was a long time ago. I could be wrong. But I seem to remember that's what it was. But the point is this eccentric uh, English producer named Harry Allen Towers secured the rights. And Harry, Paul, this is another story. If you want to do a Harry Allen Towers story uh, episode, because he was another character, but um, he secured the rights, got Toby involved and Robert and, and Singh, and put it all together. But because of the genesis of, The Lawnmower Man, Stephen King, said, I have script approval. That's the new rule. This was the first movie where Stephen King had script approval. So once again, no Mm -hmm. pressure on me, who had never written horror. But uh, so that's why he was giving us all the notes. So to answer the second part of your question, when the movie was done, Toby went to Portland, Maine with a print. They went to a movie theater, Toby and Stephen, and they were watching, and Toby told me the story. And I'll have to do it in Toby's voice because it only works in Toby's voice. God bless him. Um, they were watching the movie, and Stephen King – you have to realize Stephen King wrote this in, like, 1972. He was going to college and worked in an industrial laundry. So this is a very old story for him. So he's watching the movie, and he'd go, was that me? Uh, no, man, that was us. Oh, damn. Okay. And he'd watch and go, was that – was that in the story? Toby goes, uh, no man, we came up with that. Oh
0: damn. <laughs> <laughs> like the whole
2: movie was like that. But the fact that Stephen King didn't know what
0: Toby and I had
2: created versus what was in the story for me was a creative victory. Cause we, you know, the, the whole idea of adaptation is you have to stay true to the original material. I mean, this like I taught, I, mentioned earlier, this movie Scandal being supposed to do in England is based on a novel. You have to be true to the original material. That's the creative thing to do, the right thing to do. There's a reason why the novel was written. So with Stephen King, we had to do the same thing. And the fact that he didn't know what was his and what was ours, for me, was tremendously satisfying. It's like we had succeeded.
4: Sure. That's got to be a compliment. A compliment. Yeah. Well you um you have
1: you,
4: uh oh, sorry, ahead, Jacob. Oh no I was gonna say because I mean obviously you know most of your uh career's been visual effects and whatnot. I mean you've worked on some of you know my favorite movies. But I mean do you have any regrets from a technical aspect on the Mangler? No.
2: I mean it so it's i mean no movie is perfect you never have enough money or enough time to do what you want but for the time and money and making it in south africa i thought technically it it came out great i mean that i have to say the thing that really makes it work on a technical level is the machine itself i mean that was designed mm-hmm. by um William Hooper, Toby's son. And, you know, in the script, I I took the description from the short story of the Hadley Watson number six. And there was one day, Toby's son comes in, William, with this clay sculpture of the mangler. And Toby and I look at each other and go, oh, my God, that's the machine. Mm -hmm. And, And that model was... You know, there's a friend of Tony's, um, Stan Gizo helped him, and they built this mach- this model, very elaborate model, and that was shipped to South Africa as the template. And here's the gr- unbelievable thing is that machine that you see in the movie is real. That's not CGI. It's only CGI when it gets up and leaves. Um, yeah. The machine was real, and the machine actually worked. This is the genius of... Williams design, you could put a sheet in one end, it would come out the other end. It didn't quite fold, because another two weeks of of work on the mechanism, and it probably would have, but also there was this genius thing, there was a bit right behind the main roller at the front of it, underneath that would drop down, and there was a pad in there, so you could have a person go in under the roller and drop into a stunt pad and live. and we blew up the real machine that was the shame is that when we blew it up we actually took the actual machine and just blew it up
4: wow but but
2: that you know technically i think given the budget and given the schedule and so on i mean that set this set that david barkham designed and the art department all of that that was an empty warehouse we went into Every single thing, the even Robert Englund in his interview on the the Blu-ray talks about, you know, the laundry baskets wheeling back and forth, and all this overhead gantry and all this stuff. Gartley's office that was all built in this empty warehouse.
1: Hmm. No, there's a lot of uh, the way you mentioned this, and on the commentary, I was not i i I guess sir, I wish I could find another word for prize, but the production value was so amazing after you had explained some of the things on the commentary um it, it it seemed like a stage it seemed like when you went into the couple of houses in South Africa, it didn't just seem like that there was uh it was um, not being as well schooled and horror films as as you guys are. Um, there's a few other Robert England films I've seen where you just don't see him as Freddy and that was what I found most enjoyable and that leads me into your, had mentioned you hadn't written horror to where I felt so many things of and I love when writers do this. Uh, uh, you obviously have such a great understanding of, of, I felt there was some noir elements. I felt like you mixed uh, comedy so well, uh, even uh, too, which some would just say, horror is supposed to have mystery, uh, but it leads me to uh, you had mentioned the primal aspects of horror, but uh, there's some things obviously people can get away with when they're writing horror. Uh, not, I guess I would only say B-movie because you're writing Citizen Kane. Uh, how What it's like as a writer there. You're still writing the best work, but is there a certain time where you can kind of look and go, okay, this is going to be taken with a great salt, So I don't have to come up with a master plan. Not being lazy, but just kind of like the kind of like writing a decent movie versus writing a horror film are just two different. Thing. So, can, did that? Can you kind of explain any of that, that, proper, that yeah.
2: proper? Well, in hindsight, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, when you're actually doing it, what happens when you're making a movie, when you're writing a script, is you get so lost that you don't know which way is up. Um. So now, with this, with this particular screenplay, Toby. Had a wicked sense of humor. You know, after I started working with him, I went back and watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre and realized how funny it is when Grandpa is trying to bash, is it, I think it's Sally over the head. Who you know, and um, and he keeps dropping the hammer, and he and they keep giving the right. hammer back, and he keeps dropping. Like it's, that's Toby's sense of humor. So we early on. Realized we had a horror movie where the monster is bolted to the floor. So the key to a great horror movie is a monster that can be anywhere. I mean, that's why the greatest one of the greatest uh, horror characters is Freddy Krueger, who comes to you in your dreams because everybody has to fall asleep, right? So we had a horror monster that was bolted to the ground. So we had so we thought let's have fun with it. Let's have a sense of humor. And I actually mentioned this in the commentary that there was a – we did a deliberate joke early on where after Mrs. Frawley gets crushed by the machine and Officer Hunton, played by Ted Levine, comes in and there's blood everywhere. They're mopping up the blood. and uh, This character, Stanner, who's the foreman who works for Gartley – talks to Hunton, you can see him, if you watch the movie, you see Stanner holding a watch. And actually, as Mrs. Frawley's going to the machine, there are shots of the watch on her wrist. And in the cut of the movie, right before the final cut,
3: there's a moment
2: where Stanner hands this watch to Hunton, and he looks at it, and it's a Timex watch that's cracked and bloody and still ticking. And, Hunt, and Standard says This is the most identifiable piece we found And this was back in the 90s When people knew those old John Cameron Swayze commercials About a Timex watch Takes a licking and keeps on ticking That was the joke And we put that in there deliberately Early on So people saw Oh, there's a joke Oh, I get it Well the That shot like three shots got cut out in the last pass of the edit. And I saw the movie screened with that shot in and people laughed. And then they understood there was humor. The rest of the movie, sick humor, sick Toby Hooper humor, but humor (laughs) without that shot. People didn't, when the next joke came, which was Ted Levine vomiting the vanilla milk, which he really did vomit because he's a method actor. Um, they didn't get the humor. And the movie lost something. You can you can, you can can hurt, really hurt the story with just like two
1: cuts. How, and there was well, a point yeah, when everything, so
0: that, every movie yeah, that wrote that after shake, that had
1: a that, that shake did feel pointless. Sorry about that. Yeah, that's kind of weird yeah, that yeah. you say that. It did feel like it took something out of the... So now that you're saying there was humor set up before that, it did make me be like why right. is he vomiting? Which I just know is kind of uh having just I am the I'm I'm the Orson Welles of producing crappy B which this isn't. But uh there would just be these random puke scenes that the director would throw in and I'd just be like why is the character puking? Like he didn't even eat. Like right. Why does there just have to be this – so so that's what i was taking it as well. They kind of know there could just be vomit or the blood Always there could be a, too, too much blood. Like you had mentioned, there's an unrated cut, and
0: uh, this was
1: intriguing to see the commentary and hear discussion. So, I mean, speaking of see, also, that – But also that – see,
2: there's t- – Toby has a lot of sense of humor around blood. There's a scene where they take Mrs. Frawley out. We're outside the laundry, and there's this like basket with just body parts and blood in it, and the two <laughs> EMTs are taking it to the to the ambulance, <laughs> or as Toby would say, the, am- the ambulance. Take it to the ambulance. He's from Texas.
0: Oh.
2: And there's a moment if you watch where they bump it on the, like, ledge, the edge of the upper part of the bumper and blood plops down, that was deliberate. That was Toby telling them to do that because that was his, that was Toby's sense of humor. Uh,
1: okay, okay. okay. That's, yeah, uh, is,
0: yeah. Uh,
1: uh, now, now somebody not holds that so many things are being plugged to where it It's not my,
0: uh,
1: where I just know so many of the quirks and the ends are out. Um there is those things, you know, like the you know, like that just kinda of go, What what's going on here? But I here. now you mentioned the I yeah. did cut, how you had and you'd mentioned some MPAA uh, blood cuts. Now could you explain to us like what I wanna think like What is too much blood? Is like another court. Too much is it coming out of an orifice? Too much like like what?
2: Yeah, I can explain it to you in that I don't understand it at all, and nobody does. The MPAA finds a group of random people not in the movie business who, I mean, they're in the LA area somewhere. (laughs) And they become the committee, and they watch the movie, and if they object to something, the MPAA makes a note. So it, it's sort of, you're at the mercy of what group of people is watching it, but you're also politically at the mercy of who's submitting it. So if, for example, Quentin Tarantino were to submit to the MPAA, he could get away with more than Toby Hooper.
0: Okay,
2: and, it, and I'm just saying that I, I, I don't know what his submission history is and so on, but the point is, it who is submitting is almost as important as the random group of people who are watching. I mean, the cuts in the mangler from the unrated version are really minor. It's still gory and gross and, you know, there's all sorts of blood and stuff. And a little inside scoop here, Todd Masters and Scott Wheeler and Scott Coulter, who did like the makeup effects and the gore effects and stuff, <laughs> Todd Masters told me one day, or maybe it was Scott Wheeler, that they always take food from the catering truck and mix it in the gore as a joke. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, okay. okay. <laughs> so, there's, so,
2: there's bits of, so there's bits of catering in like the mashed meat of Gartley and whatever, and
1: <laughs> well, p- and plus the catering truck, obviously. Uh, back to what you were saying about budget, I've I've uh, p- I p- some shows where the, you know, it was, you know. Not quite leftovers, but it was maybe just (laughs) something ordered down the street versus – I wish I knew the name because you probably know them, Stephen. Uh, They're this truck. uh, They're very famous. They're based out of the valley. And I was talking to the guy on the set of The Descendants, and we're in Hawaii. And I see the side phone number, and I go, Hey, wait a minute! I go, Isn't is that like a, a San Fernando Valley site? And he said, Yeah, they fly us out to do the catering. And he said, and then uh, uh, it was right after Argo, or right, or no, Argo had just been shot. And he said, Oh yeah, he goes, uh, Ben Affleck on a movie as an actor, and so as a director, he hires me. And, to drive from the valley to Boston to shoot, not Argo, the town. Argo, the town. He said, "I should drive to Boston yeah. to shoot the town." I thought, "My God, you drove from LA to Boston just to just to serve the the food Ben Affleck likes." I thought that's that's uh, well, that's crazy. <laughs>
0: but,
2: right, but it's not just about the director. The thing is, whether you, it's a big budget movie and people are being paid well, or a low budget movie in particular where people are being paid very little, you have to. To feed them well. First oh, yeah. of all, it's the right thing to do. Uh, second of all, it helps with morale. Like you wouldn't believe, if you're on a six-month shoot and you're eating the same tilapia five days a week, you're going to be in a really bad mood. So they actually spend the money on good caterers who are actual. The good ones are actual chefs and will vary the menu. And yes, they'll drive around the they'll drive across country with their catering truck to cater a movie. It's actually a really big deal.
0: That
4: kind of makes me laugh because uh reminds me of uh, all the rumors I heard about the movie uh, House of the Dead. From what I heard, most of the budget was actually spent on catering for that movie. <laughs> it could easily
1: so they're, be. They're definitely, a, um, what do you call the, uh, the it, the, the first day of film school, the one of our the first of our production planning class, our uh, our film school teacher said the number two rule said have a have a well fed crew and have a place where they can shit because if they can't shit or eat you're gonna have a real unhappy.
0: Oh,
1: I have a caller coming in. There. Let's see who this is. Uh, one that guys. Uh, welcome to Talking Pictures. Oh, uh, oh,
3: hi. Is that
0: Paul? Is
3: that Paul? Yeah. This oh, is it's Paul, Jeremy.
0: Here. Hello, uh,
3: Jeremy. Hey, Stephen. It's Jer- it's Jeremy Crutchley. How are you doing?
2: Yes, Jeremy. Everybody, hi, Jeremy. This is the man who played in a lot of makeup. J J J J J Picture Man.
3: <laughs> An infinite number of Js. <laughs> yes,
2: and uh, and also the the coroner. At the end, in a weird switch off where he pops out the of the scene, t- out of makeup, and pops in in makeup. Jeremy, how you doing, mate?
3: I'm doing very well. Um, yeah, sorry, I've, I've been sort of in and out and and uh, picking up, uh, you know, as much as I can of the conversation. Uh, it's it's so great to, to hear you. Always articulate. Always illuminating. Great. Stories from the business and just hooking into a great load of production uh, mm. memories. What was something very happy for me? I had to give you a shout, out, a and, shout and, out and uh, thank you, Paul, for uh, uh, you know bringing attention to this extraordinary, unusual uh, American movie uh, shot in South Africa. It was, and and it's uh, it's really a, a phenomenal thing. To hear, I I was just rather touched by something I heard right up front that you said, and then I had to disappear for a while. But I think it sort of circled around uh, about Toby's humor, and it was very much something that I happily felt on any of the my call days. It, it was, a, it, was a, it was a lovely shoot for me. I know it was. Uh, a difficult one for, for just about everybody, technically. And, uh, you know, it it really showed how what people pull out of themselves to get a movie done. And me as a, you know, obviously a much younger actor than I, I am now, I just had the greatest time on it, unexpectedly. But one of the things that really impressed me about... Uh, uh, especially about Toby, but about all the American crew that I worked with was an extraordinary humor, which I didn't expect to find uh, in such a, uh, you know, in, in in a horror movie, and in particular, you know, one which was based on the Stephen King story and the Stephen David Brooks story, too, uh, where that actually connected powerfully for me, having been in theater all my life uh, more increasingly in in film and TV, but in theater that is essentially the you 've got to remember those are the two faces of the coin that you 're always flipping it 's tragedy on one side and comedy on the other, and the bit that I like is is the fine line in between where the interesting stuff happens, and occasionally the coin lands on. One side or the other, which in in a way Stephen is indirect um, homage to your your movie Heads and Tails. Haha, <laughs> I didn't yes, expect that to come. <laughs> yes. So, so
2: Jason, say things... hi, say, Jason, say hi to the picture man. <laughs> oh
1: oh, Jason. Hi, Jason. Actually, Jason just just texted me. His phone had died. That's why he didn't.
0: Uh, oh. That's why oh. he didn't
1: hello or chime in. Yeah. No. He uh well, And he says thank you in. so much. Yeah no, well sim- thank you so a much. A symbolic
3: hello to Jason.
1: Oh thank you no uh, thank you for calling in and thank and uh, Jason texted me uh, thank you to you Stephen and uh, from all this I'm as I just pull up IMDb pages to have some some stuff to know um, uh, just one quick second and I I'm not going to ask a question but I'm just going to say. Uh, Lord of War is one of my favorite movies ever, even though it's just so despicable that that goes on in the world. Um, and uh, But also being in Flytrap, which I love, because uh, of Beckman and Stephen would deem the center of the universe, not in an arrogant way. An
0: arrogant way. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's
2: actually, it's actually, you know, in, in South Africa, the two quick Jeremy Crutchley stories was, right. Oh, yeah. We couldn't find a picture man. And picture man's described as 100 years old, and we just couldn't find a suitable 100-year-old actor in South Africa. I remember Toby parading Jeremy in one day. I remember this distinctly. Where I was standing, what the room was, and Toby goes, uh, hey man, what do you think, picture man? And I And I said, I think he's gonna need some makeup. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but
2: I also, after the the first day of shooting, I mean, you know, obviously, I, I remember taking Jeremy down to the SABC, South African Broadcasting Corporation, to get the face mask, to ship to the U.S., to Scott Wheeler, to make the prosthetic and all the stuff, to come to, to South Africa to do it. But I remember seeing Jeremy the first day of shooting, he had this old, I think it was a 4x5 Graflex, wasn't it? It was like an old press camera.
3: The camera. Yeah. It was the actual thing. It was one of those old bre- pop-out-the-ball things I had to get to learn to use it. Yeah.
2: But you had studied it. You had studied for weeks how to use it so that you unconsciously, just like pop, 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 boom, 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 next shot, you had it down as if you had been using that camera for 50 years, and I thought that oh,
3: was like, brilliant. <laughs> and and I, remember was,
2: was you, a... I remember saying to it you, I remember saying to you back then in 1850 when we were shooting, "You're going to star in a movie for me one day."
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that all worked out for both of us. Yeah, yeah it, it,
0: it, me it was, too.
3: Um, I'm glad you had that thought. That's two two things I hadn't. Um, Uh, I'd I'd almost forgotten not forgotten about the camera but about that process because of course it's got the great slide-in you know, negatives you've got all those guys those old photographers using that technology you know, at the stuff of the day interesting when at the same time you're talking about being on the cusp of digital uh, treatments uh, cinematically and and there's this uh, beautiful old-school uh, a real, um, a real, a real old camera. Every single frame um, was a commitment. Every single uh, part of that process, you had to know your machine like you had to, uh, you know, know your car and, and everything. So yeah, I, I, I love getting familiar with that. Once I got certain things down, I hope I made it look, look incredible. It was a lovely gift me to have just like the makeup was this incredible gift for me um and i, I got to, to meet scott wheeler who's remained a lifelong friend i i said to him the first time we did the makeup it was a full day i think we were eight hours in there we gradually with uh familiarity and, and practice i think we got it down to about five hours was our fastest time because, and I said, I walked around in there and I said I've never seen work this fine. It, you know, the, yeah. the the and it liberated me. It it was so beautiful. You know, the, the airbrushed blood vessels, the changes of skin tone, the the it it was uh the difficult bit was the squishy sort of glue on the ears a little bit. And I thought, well this is what I'm gonna look like if I live so well. Um and it, it, I just appreciated the artwork in it And the, the again, the humor, the good spirit And the, at the time flew by We were both, you know, music fans So we had a lot to talk about And also, you know, Todd Masters and Scott um, Oh, what's the other, Scott's surname actually Well, well Scott, Coulter, um, did, Scott Coulter Scott Coulter, did the, thank you
2: Did the, the mechanics of the arms and that kind of stuff
3: yeah yeah and, and for your and audience
2: uh, for your audience Paul uh, Scott Wheeler, who was the main architect of the picture man makeup also did all the makeup for key and teal um for their
4: yeah.
2: t v series and won an Emmy, i believe certainly was nominated and also did the makeup for get out and
4: oh
1: so, wow. Oh, wow. We had the top notch. the photographer of Good Out on the show.
3: and he, Yeah, oh. it, just look him up. Yeah, and no, that was, that was fantastic. fantastic. Really? Wow. Yeah. And then just to No, look you look guys back, are. When, when we, we were in the room, and uh, I, I barely got to know you, it was sort of strange as an actor to go into that audition. Um, i had been nice asked to look at, uh, you know, William H. Burroughs and uh, I, I knew about him and, and, and studied his, his voice. I'd looked at such Chainsaw massacre and I thought, Oh my God, this is the single most frightening thing I think I've seen. And then I came to the, the, the grandpa's who you, you were talking about. And I said, yeah.
0: who,
3: whoever's done this, uh, this, this is phenomenal. Because the, and then I, when I got to work with with Toby on set one time, I I said to him, you know what what get, what's going on? This I think we were in, in the mortuary room and something something sort of rather scary and obnoxious was in a a, a bottle of formaldehyde or something and it, oh, it exploded and we had to we had a forced break and, and so we were talking about blood and evil green things and glass and, and he said, oh, oh no no. This shit scares me. It scares the shit out I of me. Mean, that's why I have to get it out. And, and so he's putting on film the things that scared him, but but with this yes. humour. It wasn't until I got to the states really and, and understood what what a you know a fun parade and Americans have with with ancient uh, scary rituals like Halloween. and but uh, the, the comedy is deeply ingrained in the seriousness of horror and what yeah. frightens people people in their life. How do you get through this stuff? Part of Toby's sort of um, exorcism of these things is is by articulating it and and giving us some ways through and having a laugh up his sleeve. I think at the same time, I had and I take it back to my experience as an actor was was only pleasurable, even in the the moments that required the most endurance. And it started in that audition, and I had this image in my mind. I can't remember much about it, but what I remember is an image of like an electric cable uh, snaking across the floor, and there was a spark, and it was like a, a Toby said something and I, and I picked it up and he said oh, I'll do it this way try that and, and, mm. and I said I just enjoy this guy's imagination and, and work um, and I just thought great if nothing else I've, I've, I've had a good time in this room next thing I know yeah. I'm being walked down the corridor and they're calling Scott and you there and, and it, it turned into this, this experience mm. and when I saw it when I went into the to, to ADR I thought, I'm looking at a Greek tragedy. And then I was hearing the extraordinary soundtrack, the music by Barrington Um And it's, there's some beautiful orchestration in this between, yes, it's sometimes inflated. Yes, sometimes, you know, we can, we, we can overpraise certain things. Right, you rightly say, you know, we're given certain materials and limits, and yet you work within them and beyond them. And there's this thing which at points reaches the heights of really bloody, awful um, sort of elements on the scale of of Jacobean and Greek tragedy. And yet, at the same time, you can have a joke, such as in the mortician scene where I... I leave the scene as the mortician, come back in as the picture man. And and, and, Ted's and there's a kind of mood to those things, which is uh, you, you've got to have a smile going at the same time. But I remember yeah. Toby sort of laughing about the blood, saying, "Oh, more blood there. That's oh, yeah. the right Um yeah. It's and actually funny. You know, it, it's you'll certain. notice, you'll,
2: you'll, you'll notice, Paul, and your audience will notice. Anyone who's ever worked with Toby. Will unconsciously go into a Toby imitation at certain words. <laughs>
0: like Jeremy was just
2: doing. He, he probably wasn't conscious of it, but you just can't help it. It's like, oh, far out, man. You know, you just it just happens because that's the kind of bigger than life influence Toby was. Well, well, was very
0: generous. Well, I I, I, I I just like, said, like I,
1: hearing, I, that. I like hearing <laughs> I like hearing all this because. I'm definitely just right in that age of it's. I mean, it's it's like saying uh, George Lucas and Star Wars. Okay, that's cool because he really has done Star Wars and American Graffiti. But well, it's flyboy. But, but to just see hear about all these other films and all these other stories, because uh, someone my age is just like Toby Hooper, Texas, some as if he just made like one film, you know, helped the genre, and it's like stopped. And so uh, that's what was so enjoyable about doing this. And and I think for almost a couple months now, even I've had planned, and I've been really excited to get to see something. Uh, that's different, and that's not uh, what everyone knows about. I mean, guys, like we were talking about earlier, people that don't even like horror films, like the Texas Chicken Massacre, um, you know, Jason, someone who's just always on Facebook talking about horror films, and this got taken off of BS, this vanished, this will never be seen, I mean, you know, like like I said, Robert Osborne of horror films, and so uh, been really fantastic yeah. and uh yeah. we have about five minutes yeah. left i yeah. I guess yeah. I could yeah. give you guys uh the yeah. question and i would I would love to just know this that we pretty much ask every yeah. guest yeah. at the end yeah. Yeah. Um, um, in for both of you yeah. uh Stephen for uh, something directing yeah. and Jeremy yeah. acting, uh, uh is there a genre I know Stephen you had to before you like to you always want to do something different. But there's no you would you would not direct i mean,
0: direct. I mean
1: lights are out, car pay is passed you haven't eaten in a week, but no way you're directing it,
0: you're directing it.
2: um no i I wouldn't limit myself, I think it needs to be about people, it needs to have identifiable problems with identifiable characters with identifiable goals and desires and weaknesses and that's all that matters to me. Uh, genre doesn't matter.
1: And uh, Jeremy, is there a role you you would have, you
3: would play? play. Well, that's, that's a really good question, Paul, and I'm in a similar spirit to to Stephen on, on this one because I've said to myself, I will never do that, and find myself doing it. Uh, one being, for example, a class which more, more like kind of romantic comedy or, a, say, a, a, an Agatha Christie. But, oh, no, no, that's so passe. That's sort of that, that young rebel me who wants to just do rock and roll stuff. And then you do it one day, and you find out that is bloody hard to pull off right. To pull off correctly, or to actually get in it, and you—you, you, one of the things you learn is humility and admiration for those who can actually craft a different style from what you either like or can't do, or have perhaps you know something different. And every category you could name, to me, the edges blur, and you find that there are essential things in each one of those, which Steven's also just rightly pointed to. And that in all of them, if there isn't that core of truth that you have to find, or there isn't that, there's going to be something at the extreme points of any uh, any particular style. And you've got to know the style that you're in, really. That's that's what that's what the the key is about. Uh, I'm probably waffling here, but uh, I've, 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 the one I would probably say is no, I don't want to play the bad or the the. The uh, You know, the typical guy, and yet you can point to an actor like Brian Cranston, who, you know, has taken things from where he was known for Malcolm in the Middle, and now, you know, after he did Breaking Bad, every, so many people say, oh, it, but he's that guy, and you want to say, no, he's an actor, he's a fine actor, he can tip it over. And make something completely different happen, almost because of the expectation. And all these different styles have expectations. Mm-hmm. But as, as a as a writer or a director or a performer, um, I I wouldn't refuse anyone. But my favourites are probably, you know, dramatic, thriller. I love historical. And then I start to go like Hamlet. You know, lots of the historical, pastoral, comical, tragical. And, you know, all <laughs> of rolled together. So I'm going to stop there before I say any more. No, well, yeah, well, I I,
2: I, 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 I I haven't heard <laughs> Hamlet. Is that Aaron Sorkin who wrote Hamlet? I
3: know,
1: I know. You know, he. Aaron I, I
2: Aaron
0: Sorkin's Hamlet, right?
1: Yeah, we won't we won't be around but if the world's around in two thousand years I believe Mammoth or Sorkin will be what people say is our is our hamlet for that, uh however many years ago it was. Um so unfortunately we're down to two minutes, so we have to wrap it up. Okay. But we wanna say we wanna say uh thank you to you guys, Stephen and Jeremy nice to meet you and we appreciate the call cool. in. This was our first call yes. in show. We love that we got a couple of them, cool. and uh, we'll definitely. All right, thank uh, you. I'll, yeah, and I'll I'll get Stephen okay. the link, and he can get it off to you. But um, just uh, cool. we're we so grateful when someone takes the time for us. So uh, happy well, holidays to you guys. All I, that. I
2: enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, and thank you, Jason, for calling in. If you're still listening. Oh and yeah,
1: I'm
0: glad, definitely. I'll be uh,
1: sending that to.
3: The picture uh, man showed up, Jeremy Crushley. Yeah, great, great to chat. Thanks, guys. Bye. Excellent. You guys I have a great, everyone, safe, everyone happy holidays. And
2: Jeremy, your Blu ray's yeah. in the mail. Jeremy, your Blu ray's <laughs> in the
3: that, mail. That's definitely <what> you are. <laughs> Yeah, you're checking <laughs> <me>. <laughs> I hope everyone enjoyed it. Well, yeah. I had well, a great time doing it. Excellent. Thank you,
1: Jeremy. You guys, that you have a great night and aloha.
2: aloha. You too, aloha. Thank you. Bye. Aloha.
0: Aloha. Happy Bye. Bye. Bye.